Our Cactus Campus and our chapel venue and our venue across campus are joining us right now. And I know some of you have been standing a lot already today, but there's a wonderful tradition within Christian circles that cuts across all denominational lines in which when the Word of God, especially the Gospels, are formally read, people stand out of reverence for the Word of God. So would you stand with me one last time right now, and I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. You can look up here on the screen and read along with me, but dial in to the Scripture reading that we have before us today, and then I'll pray and you may be seated. Here's what it says. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to hear him and to be baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that as we unpack a bit of this wonderful, wonderful scripture, that talks to us about a guy that we don't talk about very often in our everyday lives, John the Baptist, that you might give us insight and understanding into his life and how his life and ministry can even intersect our lives today. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Have a seat. So, as I mentioned in my prayer, John the Baptist is not talked about very often, even today, among people who call themselves Christians. I, I talk with a lot of people throughout the week, and we reference quite a few biblical characters in our discussion, whether we're talking about King David or Paul the Apostle or what have you. I hardly ever hear anybody reference John the Baptist. And yet what's interesting is that he appears in all four gospel accounts, all of them, and he appears on multiple locations in, in the gospel accounts, not just at the beginning of the gospel like Mark does here. And to understand the ministry of John the Baptist, you only have to dial into two words that will help you fully get what, how God used this man in the lives of those around him 2,000 years ago. Look up here on the screen. Those two words would be prepare and point. Prepare and point. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. You see, he was tilling the ground, preparing the soil of people's hearts for what God was about to do in sending Jesus into this world. He was helping getting them ready for the coming of Jesus into this world. And then when Jesus came, born of, a, of the Virgin Mary, he pointed to Jesus and said, this is he. This is the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is the Jesus that I've been preparing you for. And so again, I know we just read the scriptures, but look again at Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says, John appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country went out to him, and he baptized them in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. You know, commentators wrestle, Bible experts do, with exactly what does it mean when it says that he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And the reason they wrestled with that is because only Jesus was the one who could actually forgive us of our sins before God. So what does it mean when it says that John the Baptist forgave sins? And what they generally agree on is that the water baptism here simply uh, symbolized cleansing, kind of like water washes dirt off the body. It, it was symbolizing the cleansing of one's soul and that the confessing of sins, repentance, and forgiveness were simply designed to wake people up to their need for a Savior, to get them aware of their sin and fallenness, begin confessing that stuff, experiencing kind of the precursor of forgiveness through this baptism, so that when Jesus came on the site, that, they, that John could point to him and say, now here is where your eternal forgiveness is going to be found. And sure enough, if you look at verses 7 through 8, as John prepared them to receive Jesus, all of a sudden he would point to Jesus. It says in verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he, Jesus, who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, I baptize you with water. And so don't miss this. John had a twofold ministry uh, 2,000 years ago in the lives of those around him to prepare them for the coming of God into their life. And then as God came into their life, he would point to Christ and say, this is he. He, he played an unexpected appearance and an unexpected role as he baptized people, getting their hearts ready to receive Christ. And so John the Baptist, by anybody's estimation, was certainly a hero in a New Testament sense of the word, lighting the pathway for people to know God. Or to use our series uh, theme that's before us, John was another's voice that became an avenue for people to know Jesus, a tender but firm voice that spoke into people's lives so that they might find Jesus and know God. Now, with that very, very brief understanding of John the Baptist, uh, here's what I don't get. Here's what I need you to help me with. And it's this. If John the Baptist is such a hero figure of the New Testament, I mean, if he's a guy that we should be, be proud of and admire because he's mentioned so much in the Gospels here, then my question is, why don't we hear more sermons about John the Baptist? I mean, why don't we have little bracelets that we all wear around that say WWJTBD on them, which would be, what would John the Baptist do? Why don't we tell our children that when they grow up, we hope that they become like John the Baptist? See, I never hear Christians do any of that. We relate our lives to Paul the Apostle at times, or Timothy, or even David, or one of the kings, Moses. Obviously, we do so with Jesus. He's our Savior. But why don't we do it with this guy, John? And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Jamie, he, he did live in the desert. Uh, he ate gross food. He, he, he dressed like a cross between Tarzan and the Karate Kid. And he died by being beheaded by Herod. So what would you like our children to imitate <laughs> about his life? And I get that. But I think when we look deeper into the life of John the Baptist, there are some key things that he did that all come back to this idea of prepare and point that you and I can model ourselves after today and likewise, now don't miss this, become an avenue for others to know Jesus either for the very first time or even in a deeper way. 
And then I think even further, there's some things that John teaches us that allow us to see other godly people around us as an avenue, another's voice crying in the wilderness that might just speak truth into our lives. So I'm going to entitle this, What You Do. Three things that I think we can pattern our lives after when we consider John the Baptist, even in his unique role in the first century, three things that transcend time that allow us to become, if you will, more like John. And here's the first thing, and that is that we need to learn to invest in another and then likewise receive investment. And let me repeat that. John teaches us to invest in other people to be another's voice in their lives, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, but then also if we're humble and are willing to allow God to move in our lives, to receive investment. Now, to see this, I need you to look once again at how the description of John the Baptist begins in verse 2. And let's go a little bit deeper this time with this one. Look up here on the screen at verse 2. It says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, now here it is, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. I put it there in yellow, Cactus Venue and Chapel, I put it in yellow there for you to, to focus on that little phrase, I send my messenger. That's, that's what the prophecy predicted. And my question is simply this, does God still send you and me as messengers into the lives of those around us to be his voice at times in their lives? Yes or no? Does he do that? I think he does. And does God still send messengers at times to you, <laughs> godly people around you, who in a timely way will be an avenue for you to also grow closer with Jesus and even hear him in your life? Yes or no? Yes. Some of you want to say no right now. I get it. Because you don't want to let other people in. And you say, it's just me and God and there's no way I'm going to let others have that kind of control in my life. We'll talk about some parameters we need to put around this in a minute. But, but I can tell you right now, as somebody who has studied the Word of God for 30 plus years, the, the simple answer to that is yes. And it's not just this passage that patterns after John the Baptist that tells us yes, but a plethora of scriptures that affirm this. Jesus said in Matthew 28 to his disciples, extending to you and me, to go into all the world. And what are we to do? Preach, teach, baptize, being God's voice at times in the lives of those around us. At another point in his ministry, Jesus chose 70 people, not just the 12 disciples, 70, and said, and I quote, I send you out as sheep among wolves to what? To tell others about the kingdom of God to be another's voice in their lives, even an extension of God's voice. You see, God sending human beings to other human beings has been going on ever since he created the world. And the heat definitely turned up with the coming of Jesus into this world and sending John the Baptist as a forerunner but that kind of ministry, maybe on a smaller but still very personal level, is still going on today. As people are seeking Jesus or a disciple of his is struggling in their faith and life. And God just might want to send you to be another's voice in their life. Or when you're hurting, for someone to come alongside you and be a voice that you desperately need to go deeper in Jesus. 
And so it only makes sense that the first thing that we pattern our lives after in looking at a hero like John the Baptist is to likewise hear God's call to be sent into the lives of those around us as well as a call to receive others when God sends them to us. You know, as I've been kind of talking a lot about lately, and I don't even know why I'm doing this a lot lately, but for some reason when I turn 50, I'm evaluating a lot my first 50 years of my life. I I hope I don't do this when I'm like 60 and then 70 and then 80, but who knows? I, I just tend to be doing it at 50. So some of you have said, why do you keep mentioning you've been a Christian 30 plus years and in the ministry 25 years and da 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 and like, I don't know, I'm just, I'm in kind of an evaluation mode in my life. It gets even worse. About uh, three months ago, I was in a restaurant just having a, a meal with the Lord. I don't know if you guys ever do that. I do. I actually just leave here and say, I'm going to go have lunch with someone, which is kind of like code word for leave me alone. I want to go have lunch with the Lord. And I was in this restaurant and I was journaling and, and I decided to journal the top 10 people that God has used to literally nudge me off center at key times in my life. Uh, Ten people that that would be the top ten list that that he has used to be voices in my life at key times that I desperately needed them. And and I'm going to show you the list right now. It won't mean a lot to you, but but it means a lot to me. Uh, Give me a click here on the screen. This is what I came up with. And by the way, this is an order of how they appeared in my life. So when you see my wife Kim in the middle of it, it's not because she's sixth on the list. It's because that's when she entered into my life. So it's Joe, Ludd, Burke, Frank, Henry, Kim, Clayton and Jenny, Kevin, Andrew, and Larry. People you don't know, but here's the point. They are very, very meaningful to me. Uh, Joe was the first John the Baptist in my life. He was the one who led me to the Lord. He's the one who, who said to me, you are a sinner in need of grace. I didn't have to be convinced of that first part. I had 18 years of empirical evidence that I was a sinner, but I needed to know about God's grace, and he introduced me. He pointed me to Jesus. Lud was my very first pastor of the church that I attended in my little hometown there after I became a Christian. He taught me pastoral ministry. Burke was one of my professors at Hillsdale College, who, who, as you're here in a minute, played a huge role in some of the decisions that I would make. He was a voice from the Lord to me. Frank is my dad, and my dad has played a key role being used by the Lord at times to speak truth into my life. Henry was one of my theological mentors. Kim is my wife. Clayton was my boss at Youth for Christ uh, when I was on staff there. Kevin was my first pastor that I was an associate under. Andrew was a businessman in Detroit. And Larry is the current guy that speaks regularly into my life right now. You get the idea. These all have been another's voice, an extension of God's voice, preparing and pointing me to a deeper life in Jesus. And each one, I could tell you story after story of how they specifically, in a timely way, said things to me that, now don't miss this, that literally altered the course of my life. Because I took what they said as really something from the Lord. Uh, one quick story on this. Uh, Henry, the guy in the middle of, this, middle of that list, his actual name is Carl F.H. Henry. He was a theologian, uh, actually a great theologian when he was alive. He's now with the Lord. He was Time Magazine's Theologian of the Year. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today magazine, founding professor at Fuller Seminary. 
And lo and behold, in God's sovereignty, he was my professor at Hillsdale College, of all places, back in the 1980s for two years. And then I followed him to Trinity Seminary, went to seminary work. It's interesting how I followed him to Trinity Seminary. I was driving Dr. Henry one day in my senior year of college to the airport from Hillsdale to Detroit Metro Airport, which is a long ride. And at one point in the conversation, he asked me what I was going to do when I graduated college. And I was so fired up and zealous about the ministry. I said, I'm going on staff with Youth for Christ in Cleveland, and I can't wait to do it. And I'm going to tell young kids about Jesus, and it's going to be just awesome, even though it's Cleveland. I can't wait to go there. And he looked at me, and he said, Jamie, let me tell you a story. He said, one of my young protégés in the early days was Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And he said, and, and Bill Bright was a lot like you in the early days. He had a lot of zeal, but really not enough knowledge to go into ministry. He said, so I told Bill Bright that before he started crusade, he needed to go to seminary, and indeed he did, and that helped prepare him much better for a life of ministry. He'd say, and then he said, Jamie, I'll tell you right now, you don't have enough knowledge to go into ministry, even though you have the zeal, and you need to go to seminary. And I'll even tell you which one, Trinity Seminary, where I just donated 10,000 books of my library. I said to Dr. Henry, I said, you know, it's funny, my, my dad feels so strongly that I should go to seminary, even though my dad's not an evangelical Christian, that he has made me a deal. He said that if you go to seminary right away and don't waste any time, I'll pay for the entire bill. Dr. Henry looked at me and said, and you're praying about that? <laughs> I got back to Hillsdale and I thought, maybe this is the Lord. Maybe this voice coming into my life is God's voice. And again, I wasn't being all overly mystical here. I just started to pray about it. And sure enough, I think that was God guiding me and nudging me, preparing me and pointing me to a deeper life in Jesus. And I can tell you story after story surrounding those 10 people that you see up here, but that's really not my point. My point is this, who would make your list? Cactus, venue, chapel, who would make your list? If you and I are sitting down and I said, list your top 10 people who have been another's voice in your life that you believe would come from the Lord, could you do that? Somebody said to me last night, I got like 30 of them. I said, that's awesome. I do too. It's just that these are the top 10. And then, if you dare, I would also ask you by way of practical application, whose list would you appear on? You see, as I make my own list, I'd like to think that maybe as some other people make a list, that over 30 years, God has used me to be an avenue to others growing deeper in Jesus. And don't get me wrong, none of this ever replaces the Word. This is the Word of God to us. But make no mistake, like John the Baptist, he uses us as a voice crying in the wilderness to be an investment in other people's lives, and we need to also receive investment. Now, again, as I hinted to earlier, I know how some of you think. You think, well, Jamie, this is a risky, risky endeavor. I mean, you're basically giving people carte blanche authority to just go up to somebody else and say, Dennis, this is the voice of God, and I'm going to tell you what to do right now. And let's face it, we all know some wacko Christians that do do that to us, right? I have people do that all the time. I mean, nobody gets that more than a pastor. I mean, almost every week somebody comes up to me and says, God told me to tell you this. And, I, and honestly, I look at them and say, who are you? Who, I don't even know you. I mean, so how, how does that work? 
You see, John the Baptist actually gives us some parameters here that I think are, are helpful. So here's the second thing that John teaches us after investing in others. Look at the second thing he teaches us, and that's that if we're going to do so, we need to engage relationally. We need to engage relationally. Now, to see this, I need you to look again at verses 3 through 5, because this is very revealing. It says, the voice, focus on that, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, for the sake of time, two things I want you to know is going on here with one big result. Two things I want to point out to you that, that, that had a huge result. The first thing I want to point out to you is that it was a voice of John crying in the wilderness. That's why we call this another's voice. And it's interesting. You know what that word voice means in the original language? It just means a voice. And we sometimes read it like crying in the wilderness, that somehow he was yelling at them and screaming at them. That's not what it's saying here. It simply means that he was talking to them. He was engaging them relationally in a desolate place. We don't know where this wilderness was, but we assume that it was somewhere between Jerusalem in the south and Galilee to the north because there's a lot of wilderness there. So kind of picture Phoenix and Flagstaff and what's halfway in the middle. John met them in Black Canyon City. So as you drive by there in Black Canyon City, the only thing you ever do there is maybe get gas or a piece of pie. Uh, John the Baptist was there. And John the Baptist was there just engaging people relationally in that out-of-the-way place. Again, talking to them, being a voice, preparing them for God. And we'll get to the content of what he said in a minute, but, but just notice right now that he was engaging them relationally. And then the second thing I need you to notice there, and this is very powerful, is that after he spoke words to them, it says that he baptized them. Let me ask you as a hand raise, how many of you have ever been baptized? Raise your hand if you've been baptized here today. Cactus Venue Chapel, I hope you're raising your hands too. Baptism is such a personal thing, isn't it? it my guess is if you and I are having a cup of coffee and I said, who baptized you? That name would come right up there right now, right? You know who baptized you because they were there in the waters with you. They put their hand of tender touch on you. They asked you if you believed in Jesus, and then they took you down in those waters of baptism and brought you back out. Baptism is such a personal, private, relational entity between you and God, but then also that person who was a part of that baptism. And picture John in the River Jordan between Jerusalem and Galilee, baptizing these people in a highly relational way. So you got him engaging them with his voice, tender touch of baptism, and then the text says that the result of these two things, now this is powerful, is that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem are going out to him. Now, the question is, does that really mean all? I mean, if this is Black Canyon City, did John really empty out all of Phoenix to go up there? And what most Bible experts point out is that Mark is probably using literary hyperbole, in other words, overstating the case for the sake of effect. There probably wasn't every single person, but what he's trying to point out is that, a is that as a result of John's voice and as a result of this call that he was giving them relationally is that many, many people's hearts and minds 
were touched as they entered into this preparation time to receive Jesus. And you see, my simple point is this. Relationship tends to work this way. That when you and I love others with the truth, we'll talk about that in a minute here, that many times, because we're engaging them relationally, their hearts are going to be tender to what we have to say. I find that this is just universally true across all generations, all cultural lines, that people respond to relationships. It was Jesus' primary style. As I've said to you guys before, he had a hug em, slug em style of giving people the kingdom of God. He would draw so very close organic human being to organic human being. The woman at the well, Zacchaeus up a tree, Matthew at the tax collector's booth, the woman caught in adultery, Peter when he was denying him. And then as he drew close, as we'll see in a minute, he would slug him with the truth. But only after he had relationally drawn close to people. And I think that's so instructive for you and I, that if we dare to be another's voice in their life, we better do so only in the rubric of relationship, because that's how God works, which is why I find it ironic when people come up to me after service and say, you know, God told me to tell you this. And I look at them and say, now, now who are you again? Tell me your name and where you're from. In other words, I don't even have a relationship with you. So it's very hard for me to believe that God is saying. I'm not saying it's not possible. God is God. But the usual way he works is that it's a relational entity that we're in with somebody else that allows you to be their voice. So two very, very profound practical applications here you don't want to miss. And just give me both clicks here on the screen. I know Cactus Venue, I think you have a a different kind of screen. But anyways, in chapel. But here's the first one, is that in our high-tech, low-touch culture, Make sure that you relate to those that you invest in, person to person, flesh to flesh, voice to voice, like John did. What do I mean by that? Nobody loves technology more than me. I do. I have have a phone that's technology. I have a a computer. I I, I have another computer. I I have a television. I I love technology. I I, I text. I do emails. I don't tweet because that's really a pain. But I do a lot of the other stuff. I learned about 15 years ago, however, when all this hit the the scene, that that we have to be very careful, now don't miss this, that we don't confuse a text message or an email or even a video chat with actually being there with another person. And, And the young generation scares me on this level, and even some of you. I mean, honestly, we're texting like crazy and we're doing video chat, and and I've had people argue with me, and they'll literally say, it's just the same. I sit there and go, no, it's not. A digital medium is not the same as an organic medium, not in the least. And the reality is, is that if we think we're connecting with people because we chat and text and phone and all those things, we're kidding ourselves. Nothing can replace being with another person, having a meal, a cup of coffee, being there with them. That's a profound, profound thing. I mean, even our church, which is doing more and more teaching by video, have you noticed that that in those mediums, whether it's chapel, venue, or our Cactus campus, there is a live pastor, there is a live worship band, there are tons of people that form a community. That's a huge value to us. Because here's the point, if we're ever going to be another's voice in their life, it's going to come by being with them. 
That's what the Son of God did. He came to be with us, and he was, a, he was the voice, is the voice in our life. And John played a role in that as well. And then secondly, by way of practical application, when you do truly engage others relationally, and I don't know any other way to say this any more than this, just be real. I, I, I think even when we're with other people, it's just so, I don't know, Christians just tend to sometimes be fake as a $3 bill. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we're a defensive group of people. We really are. And I accept that because I love you guys, and I'm your pastor, and I'm, and I'm struggling with the same things you do. But you know what the younger generation, if the younger generation is in danger of being too digital, you know what they really do get? They get this idea of realness. They really do, much more than the baby boomers did. Baby boomers were interested in success and money. And, 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 you know, as soon as contemporary music hit the church, we were all excited that we had a band and, and some of these superficial things. And one thing that I love about my kids is they're like, you know what, Dad, that doesn't mean anything to us. You know, we just want something that's real. And I actually kind of like that because on a relational level, it challenges you and I. Here's how the Scriptures would put it in Colossians 1, to be Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what the Scriptures say. So whatever that means to you, I'll just encourage you that. See, John engaged others relationally as he invested in them. And you and I do the same, and we earn the right to be, at times, another's voice. And then at this point, and only at this point, are we ready for the third thing that John teaches us, and that is to speak truth. To speak truth. This is very fascinating. Look what it goes on to say about John's preparing and pointing work among the people in verses 4 and 5 and then 7 and 8. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says, everybody went out to hear him, and they were confessing their sins. Then verse 7, and he preached to them, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so it's interesting, as John played this role of another's voice in their life, what I love more than anything is that he didn't pull any punches. Do you notice that? Again, for, our, for sake of our understanding, he, he drew them all the way up to places like Black Canyon City to tell them about their sin. I, I can tell you right now, if I said to you all, I'm going to meet you in Black Canyon City this Wednesday night to have a discussion with you about your sin, it'd be a very lonely experience for me up there <laughs> because you probably wouldn't come. But John was engaging these guys relationally, and then as he did, he would pull no punches about the content of their moral, spiritual life. And he told them about their sin. Why? Preparing them for their need for a Savior. So that when Jesus showed up on the scene, they could go deeper into Jesus, even find him for the very first time, because they needed to understand their sin in order to understand their need. Uh, the great Reformation theologian John Calvin once said that the beginning of the knowledge of God is a knowledge of sin. Because until you have a knowledge of your sin, you don't have a need for God. And, and that's true, and that's what John was applying here. And so don't miss the lesson. To be another's voice in another person's life usually is going to require you telling the truth. And then also, for you to receive another voice, and this is where a lot of Christians get defensive, it's not always going to be flowery stuff, is it? It's going to be times where people on your top ten list say very difficult things to you, maybe even things that you don't get right now, but because you trust them, because you know they walk with God, you sit there and say, I don't see it, I don't get it, but I'm open to this voice. Because hopefully, as I hang in there, if you're right, I will begin to see it, and it will only benefit me 
on a spiritual level. I, I can't tell you, going back to my list, I can't tell you how many times this has been true for me. I'm Burke, I, my guy at Hillsdale College. I remember years ago, he was a Baptist minister and then turned uh, theologian and professor, and he was one of my professors in college. And at one point, knowing I was going to the ministry, I said to him, I said, well, I think I'm going to surrender to God's call for ministry. I've always found that an unusual way we say that, but surrender to God's call for ministry. I said, but you know what? When I go into church work, I'm not going to do any of that church politics stuff. I just want to tell them about Jesus. And I'll never forget what he said to me. Again, this was 30 years ago, he looked at me and he said, well, then let me tell you, don't go into church work. He said, because if you honestly think you're going to go into church work and avoid church politics, he said, you're kidding yourself. It will not happen. That was a wake-up call to me. I, I Honestly, I spent the whole next year saying, do I really want to do this? Because I think he was right. And though some of you say, well, that's just wisdom. Yeah, it is wisdom. But you know what the Proverbs tell us? Wisdom comes from God. And that wisdom is given at times through other people. And that's what we're all simply talking about here today. It's just that wisdom sometimes is really hard to hear. Truly, folks, John the Baptist was a hero, an unexpected appearance, playing an unexpected role in the lives of others. It was another's voice. And he invested in them. And then he engaged them relationally. And then he spoke truth to them. Who do you have in your life that's that kind of avenue for you? And are you playing that role in other people's lives, your friends, your family, your coworkers, your, 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 your kids, your fellow church members? Are you an avenue for them, and do you have avenues in your own life? It's part and parcel, please see this today, of how we know Jesus, and it's why we need each other. Now, two last thoughts, and we're done, about what John the Baptist teaches us here. And this is the price that you pay. If you dare to be an avenue, and if you dare to go down the avenue with others in your life in this way, there's two things that you will experience that I want to prepare you for. The first one is loneliness. <laughs> it's loneliness. Uh, John teaches us this when it says in verses 3 and 4, the voice of one crying in the, what is it, wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. I, I made the wilderness sound attractive earlier when I said it was this great desolate place that they could be alone in and do business with God in. But what most Bible experts point out is that the wilderness also symbolizes a desert, barren, lonely place. And John the Baptist many times experienced loneliness. Why? That brings us to the second thing, and this is why. And that is that when you engage people like this, you will have success mixed with failure. That's what the Scriptures teach us. In other words, not every time you're a voice in another's life will they listen to you. And even worse, sometimes they won't just not listen to you. They will say, how dare you speak to me like that and distance themselves from you. And if you've heard me right today, these are people that you love, that you are engaged with relationally, and so the stakes really do become high. John the Baptist experienced this. He was eventually put in prison. He was eventually beheaded. He, he, he even at one time doubted, like, is this really the Jesus? And I mean, he was just, it just led to a lonely place in which he remembered the successes of the early days, but then some of the failures of the later days, and he, he's a wonderful model for how this actually might work in our lives. If you dare to be an avenue 
Or if you dare to allow others to be an avenue to knowing Jesus, you will have great highs mixed with great lows. It's just the price that you pay. I'm telling you, I I live this all the time. I, I could tell you story after story of times when I feel like God has truly led me in a very tender but very clear way to be another's voice. And I sit down, and I've earned the right, and I've engaged relationally, and I, and, and I do give my best shot to be a voice, and they look at me, and they just say, how dare you say that to me? You have no right to do that. And I reject what you're saying. And honestly, you guys know me. I'm, I'm pretty candid with people. I, I don't push it. I just say, I know my heart, and I know I love you. <laughs> That's my only defense. I know I love you, and I really do think that, that, that this is right and wise for your life, and you can receive it or reject it, and I know you're probably going to reject me because of this, but please know the motive we, behind it was purely love. I, I have no other agenda there. That, that, that's my only defense, and many times that doesn't work, and it becomes a lonely proposition in which you have great times of success when people do hear, and other times of loneliness and failure. And, and by the way, it works the other way too. There have been people, maybe some of you need to apply this today, that have come to me and I've rejected their voice. And I've said, how dare you speak into my life that way? But then time goes by and I realize their voice was exactly right. (laughs) You can ask all 10 people on that list. I realize their voice was exactly right. And in humility, I've gone back to them and said, forgive me. Forgive me for being so prideful and not listening to that voice, your voice, that really was from the Lord. And God even brings a reconciliation out of it. This is really what separates the men from the boys, the women from the gals when it comes to the Christian life. But we're looking at seven different avenues in this series. This is the first one, uh, and it's a hard-hitting one. The avenue of another's voice. And yet it pays great dividends in you knowing Jesus if you will hear the voice and even be a voice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Uh, the teaching of your word here today, that even a ministry of John the Baptist, which admittedly we don't focus on as much as we should, uh, can become such a wonderful, wonderful avenue for us to apply today in being another's voice that hopefully is an extension of your voice into the lives of those around us in a very humble way, but then also receiving that voice. And so God, I pray for these dear people here and at Cactus and Venue and Chapel that God, you would help us to be a right voice that you want us to be as you send us into this world. But I pray, Lord, as well, that we would be humble enough to have our top 10 list of those that we have allowed to be voices in our lives and that we respond to for the only goal to know you deeper and find you more meaningfully in our lives. And so, God, I pray that you would protect us and provide for us in this area. And, Lord, may we be thankful for this avenue that you've provided. And I pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.